You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. We're going to look today at, uh, begin looking at verse uh, 18. We're going to read verse, through down to verse 26, but I think we're only going to cover through uh, verse 20. Uh, today. It, it is the, the Gospels of uh, Matthew and Luke that share the narrative of Jesus' birth, the story of his birth. And uh, if we follow the timeline that Luke sets forth, uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25, Zechariah uh, was informed concerning the birth of his son, who uh, was the forerunner to Jesus. And uh, this was followed by the angel appearing to Mary in Luke 1, 26, and announcing that she would give birth to the Savior by the Holy Spirit. Mary then goes to visit her relative Elizabeth, who is Zachariah's wife. Uh, Luke 1, 39, she stays for three months uh, there and uh, then returns to Nazareth. And then a few months later, Luke tells us Elizabeth gives birth, uh, her and Zechariah, to a baby, a son, who they are instructed to name John the Baptizer. And then Matthew picks up the story at this point. He doesn't say anything about any of that that has uh, transpired before, but what Luke says is important uh, for what happens next because uh, Matthew uh, wants us to hear another piece of the story at this point, and that is how Joseph, who was uh, betrothed to Mary, how he finds out about uh, all of these things uh, that are going on. And so we begin reading in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Father, help us in, in these moments that, that we have to, uh, to have ears to hear and hearts uh, ready to receive what you would have to say to us from your word and the power of your spirit. I pray that you would use me as your servant today, that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned last week that the Christmas story is not just sentimental, but it is supernatural. 
And the old saying, uh, familiarity breeds contempt, I think is true when it comes to the Christmas story, that we can become so familiar with the story that we lose something of the miraculous. We lose something of the all. Uh, we, we lose something of, of, of that all that should follow when we read these things. We need to remember that the Christmas story had a disturbing effect on everyone that was involved. That is, that when Christ came into the world like this, He changed everything. He turned everything upside down. He turned uh, people upside down and inside out, if you will. He, it was true of Joseph, as we're going to see today. He turned Mary's life upside down. He turned her relatives, her family's lives upside down. It, it was true of the shepherds. Their lives were turned upside down before this is over with. The wise men were turned upside down. Uh, King Herod's life was changed, uh, affected the, the whole city of Bethlehem. Not, not, when you read this story, not one was left unchanged by the coming of Christ. Not one was left unscathed. No one was left untouched by the coming of Christ the King. And, and, and that is true of all who encounter the Christ of Christmas. Anyone who encounters Christ, this is true. He has a way of turning our lives upside down and inside out. And in fact, He does not come into a person without doing so. He is not a sentimental Savior. He is a sovereign Savior. The, the psalmist told us this in Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Praise the Lord, there's refuge in Jesus. Amen? There's refuge. He is a Savior. But friend, do not patronize Him. Do not patronize Him. If He is not King of your life, He is not Savior. And it is precisely His kingship, His divinity here in these opening pages of Matthew that demands a response. It, it, it leads to life transformation. The story here, beginning in Matthew 1.18, is the story of how J Joseph came to receive Jesus into his life. It, it's about how he came, how Jesus came, how he received him into his heart and into his home and into his life. And, and it explains the disruption of that, the, the cost, uh, the difficulty, the crisis that came when Christ came. Uh, into his life. The story begins with this young couple named, of course, Mary and Joseph, who are pledged to be married. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, Matthew says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The word betrothed is similar to our engagement, but more. Uh, more significant. You can read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 7. 
But basically, two families would come together and draw up a contract that promised marriage between each of their children. It was a binding contract. And if at any time during the uh, betrothal period that you violated that marriage vow, you, you had to be divorced in a legal sense. So you were legally married in the betrothal, though there was no physical relationship. Uh, in fact, that one-year period of betrothal was to make sure that the bride was pure, that she had been faithful, and that she was not pregnant. And so during that period, there was not a lot of social contact at all. There was a certain amount of distance between the young couple. Uh, Matthew mentions it twice, doesn't he? Verse 18, uh, before they came together. You understand that's a, a reference to intimacy. Uh, verse 25, Joseph knew her not until she had given birth. There was no intimate contact between Mary and Joseph in this betrothal period, which reminds us that Joseph and Mary are great examples of remaining sexually pure until their marriage. I realize that uh, in our culture today, virginity is uh, no longer cool, and uh, we are told that this is unrealistic and this is prudent, prudish, uh, this is uh, uh, old-fashioned, and that it often leads to ridicule and rejection by one's peers. I uh, don't keep up much with celebrities, and this will probably reveal how dated I was, but when I was thinking about this, I, I popped into my mind Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes. Uh, I remember a while back they were in the news often, and it may have been a really long time. I don't know, but I remember there was news about Tom Cruise jumping up and down on Oprah Winfrey's couch. He was so excited about his relationship with with Katie, and then in the separate interview, Katie is going on and on about Tom, and she said, Tom and I will always be in our honeymoon phase together. And I thought, that is so odd since they've never been married yet. But see, that's exactly how our culture thinks today, and the message is don't wait until you're married to do this. But, but God, in, the, in His Word, places great value on sexual faithfulness, abstinence before marriage, and faithfulness during the marriage. Verse Thessalonians 4, 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Sexual purity is of high value to God. It's a sacred thing. It's not something to take lightly. And so what a beautiful picture here in the Scripture of the faithfulness Mary and Joseph show us. This also helps to explain why Joseph must have been shaken to the core uh, in those words that Matthew tells us when Mary, Matthew writes, was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. I've often wondered, how was Mary found? to be with child. I mean, did, was there a, a baby bump uh, that he suddenly noticed after uh, the journey uh, Elizabeth, uh, uh, to Elizabeth's house and Mary came back? Or did he find this out from a family member? Uh, did, did Mary simply tell him this story? Well, we're not told. And, and, and maybe Matthew was telling us more than Joseph knew at the time, that this is from the Holy Spirit. Of course, Mary knew this, Right? Because we have all of Luke's story. Luke's gospel tells us the whole story. 
It tells us how Gabriel, angel Gabriel, came to Mary. Luke 1.30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then Mary, once again, affirming that she is a virgin, she says, Luke goes on, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That's remarkable, isn't it, church? The answer to the song, Mary, did you know, was yes, she knew. Because the angel told, and I like the song, by the way, but the angel told her so. Told her everything. She knew why and when and how she became pregnant. Poor Joseph, though. Either at this point he's in too much shock to process this or, or, or something, but the text indicates that this, this wrecked Joseph's life. He was deeply troubled in, in his spirit. And, and I can only imagine Mary's attempt here to explain how this came about. You know, Joseph, please understand, this angel came to me, you know, and told me all of these things and and let's be honest that would be hard to believe right i mean in all of history there's never been a, a virgin birth and so when people saw an unwed mother there was only one conclusion that's all except in this case there was another conclusion and both matthew and luke are clear crystal clear in both of their stories, that this baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And, and so this seems to be the first crisis brought into Joseph's life, how this began to turn his life upside down. And we, we might call this, I struggled with the language, but maybe we would call this an intellectual crisis here for him. Uh, if he's not Joseph's son, then whose son is he? What are we to believe about this? And, and when you read the Gospels, by the way, in your Bible reading plans, you, you'll see that this was a source of debate throughout Jesus' life. Whose son are you, Jesus? In fact, Jesus himself asked the uh, Pharisees in Matthew 22, it says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? It's, it's a question that needs to be answered, and it needs to be answered by every person of every age because the answer to that has profound implications to everything in life. Uh, Larry King, uh, many of you may remember the, the interviewer of, of CNN. He's now passed away, but one time he appeared as a guest on the late show with uh, David Letterman, voice all these references are back a few years ago. I promised I've watched TV since then. I don't think it's helped me at all, but um, it didn't help me then. It's probably not helping me now. But, but uh, Larry King was on David Letterman, and uh, Larry, Letterman asked Larry King, he says, if you could interview any person in history, Larry King, a famous interview, if you could any, interview any person in history, throughout history, who would you pick? And without hesitation, King responded, Jesus Christ. And Letterman was just floored by this. You could, you could tell in the interview he was kind of stumbled. He, he looked stunned. 
And he, he kind of made a, a stammer in recovery, and, and he followed up with this question. Letterman said, well, what would you ask him? And King said, I would ask him if he really was born of a virgin. Because the answer to that question, he said, would define history. Because it would mean that Jesus is the Son of God, you see. And that fact would reorient everything in life. Now, I know that you, uh, you do watch TV, perhaps, and, other, and read other things. And, and uh, as you know, there's a strong skepticism today towards some, believing something like a virgin birth. And it's a strong skepticism. It's not just in the media, but it's even in Christ Christian colleges, some of them, some seminaries. Uh, in spite of the fact that this is clearly taught in Scripture, both Matthew and Luke go out of their way to communicate this remarkable truth. And they do so because of how important it is. But there's a great skepticism about it today. A few years back, Newsweek uh, did an article questioning the veracity of the virgin birth. There's a, the author was named John Meacham. He's still around today. You could uh, read some of his stuff, though I wouldn't recommend it. But he argued that the uh, inerrancy and, and, and uh, that the infancy and birth narratives in the article, he said, were simply invented by the early church in order to answer awkward questions and to develop a, a fully orb theology and understanding of Jesus. Uh, so, so, in other words, the, the article wanted you to believe that you can throw away the virgin birth and still be a Christian. Can you? I don't think so. If, if you don't believe Jesus was born of a virgin, then how can you believe that he was more than a mere man? And if you don't believe he's more than a mere man, then how can you believe he was the Son of God? And if you don't believe that Jesus was God, how could he possibly do anything about your sin? MacArthur underscores this truth. He writes, apart from Jesus being both human and divine, there is no gospel. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is the central fact of Christianity. That's, that, that's exactly right. Uh, Jesus didn't become God. He was and is God. And, and his virgin birth, along with his perfect life and his substitutionary death on the cross and his resurrection and his ascension and his return are all integral aspects of his deity. You know, they stand and they fall together. If any of these teachings are rejected, then the entire gospel is rejected. That's how important this is. So we emphatically declared that if Mary was not a virgin, if Jesus was conceived by Joseph, and this is some kind of cover-up here, then he would not be the Son of God, and we might as well go home today. But thank God, Jesus is the virgin-born, sinless Son of God. Aren't you thankful for that? And the hymns that we sing, like... Some of these carols, beautiful. We didn't sing this today, but we will. Hark the herald angels sing. It, it reminds us of these truths. Christ, by highest heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come. Offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as men with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. 
We know this truth because we know the whole story here, that everything is going to work out and uh, be okay. But, but we need to wrestle with the fact that I think Matthew's point is that this wasn't okay for Joseph. But again, Jesus coming in is disrupting his life. Ferguson uh, writes in his little book, The Dawn of Redeeming Grace, he said, Joseph's thoughts about Mary, his plans and hopes for their future, his own reputation, and his family's social standing lay in tatters around him with this announcement. His life was wrecked. How could he believe Mary's story? The coming of Jesus didn't just create an intellectual crisis, though, but, but a personal crisis in Joseph's life. A personal crisis. Well, we learn, verse 19, her husband, Joseph, being a just man and willing to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Notice the terminology, husband, that Matthew uses again. The betrothal was a legal marriage even though they had not come together as a, as a couple. Deuteronomy 22, again, was clear uh, in this that what was, what was to be done in a case like this, in the absence of, of some kind of a sexual assault against Mary, she had committed a capital offense. She had broken half of the Ten Commandments. Uh, she had committed adultery. She had dishonored her parents. It, this would have been essentially like wishing Joseph dead uh, stealing what was, had been pledged to him. She lied. She had desired something that did not belong to her, namely another, uh, another man. Uh, this was the implication. This is what Joseph is wrestling with here. Joseph loved Mary, but he feared God. And he wanted to obey God's word, his law, and so he made the difficult decision that he should not continue in the marriage. Notice how Matthew puts the struggle here, he, that, Matthew, uh, uh, that Joseph was a, a, quote, a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. Because of his righteous love and kindness, he, he couldn't bear the thought here of, of publicly shaming Mary, which would have been very common in a situation like this. But Joseph was the one, in a sense, who had also been shamed, and yet he is worried about Mary's shame, isn't he? Above his own. He decided he would divorce her quietly, secretly. Maybe this is what a righteous man should do, he thought. And then why does Matthew tell us that after he sort of decided to do this, that Joseph seems to be still struggling with it because while he's, at least it seems like to me, in verse 20, he's gone to bed, he's still considering these things. He's laying his down on his head at night and, and things still don't seem, there's no peace in this. The coming of Christ is, into his life was bringing him to a personal crisis. But this is part of the way, at least, we're looking for application. This is part of the way God works in preparing for us to receive Christ. When the truth, who is, is Christ, comes to us, when we're confronted with the truth of Christ, there is a personal crisis, you see. This isn't just checking a box and signing a, a form or, or whatever. There, there's, there's, 
When you encounter Christ, when you become a Christian, there's a, there's a crisis. You discover some things about yourself that, that you didn't want to know or at least didn't want to admit, namely that you're a sinner. That the person that you've been ignoring and putting off and keeping at arm's length is actually the very Savior that you need, Jesus. And, and then you begin to discover things about Jesus that you hadn't wrestled with before, that he was and is virgin-born, son of God, king of kings, and that if these things are true, it, it would change everything. And in fact, it would demand a response from your life. What are you going to do with Jesus? Perhaps at least you have this in common with Joseph, that you didn't understand at the time that God was working in you like this, but he was preparing you to receive Jesus through difficulty, through the truth. You see, for Joseph to receive Christ into his life, if he marries Mary, that the disgrace is going to come upon him as well as Mary. People are going to think that Mary has been unfaithful to him, or both Mary and Joseph have been together before marriage, and therefore they've been unfaithful to God. Perhaps Joseph even is wrestling with this. He's thinking, I don't know if I, if I want this child, Jesus, in my life or not, because if I bring him into my life, I will get the disdain of the world. I'll be marginalized. I'll be put over to the side. My life will be ruined. And you know, there's some truth in that. You, you can't receive Christ if you're not willing to accept the world's disdain, because Jesus told us this, right? He said, if they reject me, they're going to reject you. What? You're one of those people? You actually believe in a virgin birth? In a sinless Savior who is the only way to God? No matter how you communicate those things, you're going to sound arrogant, aren't you? You're going to raise eyebrows. You might even be pushed to the margins of life. You mean you're one of those? You may lose respect. You may lose friends. To receive Jesus into your life brings reproach. It brings a certain amount of disdain. And so when Christ comes to you, there's a personal crisis. It takes place. But behind all of this, or maybe even at the root of all of this, we might say is a faith crisis, isn't it? I think Joseph is trying to do the right thing according to God's word. He's trying to think biblically. He's trying to act obediently. And this is why, again, his mind is troubled when he went to bed. But verse 20 says, But as he has considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph needed help in understanding what was taking place and how gracious of our God to send this angel to him. The angel appears to Joseph in a dream as opposed, by the way, to in person with Mary. 
This isn't a dream. And I would give you just a word of caution here, just an application. Dream revelations uh, are not normal in the Bible. They occur infrequently in, uh, in the Bible, and usually kind of in clusters, if you will. So, for example, in this Christmas story here in Matthew, there's dreams in uh, chapter here, chapter 2, verse 12, verse 13, verse 19, verse 22. We have all kinds of angelic dreams happening uh, here, or, or dreams that, uh, from angels appearing. But, but these are usually at strategic times in redemptive history. So, so in other words, this is not to be something normal in your life. I have weird dreams all the time about, you know, tacos and, I mean, I don't know what else. All kinds of crazy things, you know, that pop into my head. I'm like, why would I dream that? Do not fall into thinking, that must be from God. Do not look to your dreams for the will of God. Look to the Word of God which has been given to you. A lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Not your dreams. Even in the Bible, dreams are unusual. So don't think that you're the one. So here at the incarnation of God's Son, the angel appears to Joseph in a dream to inform and assure him. And he does that. Joseph, son of David, he says, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Once again, there's affirmation. This what was conceived in Mary was of the Holy Spirit, right? And Joseph is encouraged, don't fear to take Mary. This is the missing piece of the information, the missing piece of the puzzle that helped Joseph to discern now what he should do. How humbling, how overwhelming it must have been for him to have come into this knowledge to have learned what God was doing in Mary's life. But also, what God was doing in his own life. You see, Joseph was challenged here to believe that God had done this. Uh, he, he was challenged, Joseph was challenged to welcome Jesus, the Savior, into his life. Joseph was challenged to devote the rest of his life to Jesus. These are the same challenges that anyone to whom Christ comes is faced with, are they not? To believe the gospel is to believe the person and work of Jesus Christ from beginning to end. It is also to welcome Him, to receive Him into your life, and it is to turn from yourself and your sin and commit to Him everything. Are you willing to do this? Remember, this isn't a sentimental Savior that we're talking about here. This is a, the sovereign Savior, a divine King. To receive Christ the King is a, a costly decision. Welcoming Him, welcoming Jesus, means that you will share in what happens to Him. As Jesus was scorned and rejected and crucified, so He turns to anyone who would follow Him and He demands them, deny yourself, take up your cross, 
and follow me daily. Make no mistake, his path is from the cradle to the cross. There's no other path. Those who come to Jesus in faith will be shaped by him. You don't shape Jesus, he shapes you. And those who come to Christ, like Joseph or Peter and Paul and others, they discover that their lives begin to take on uh, the shape of Jesus so that those who follow him are, as 2 Corinthians 4.10 says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So here we are today, very familiar story. We've read it a thousand times. Many of us have these Christmas stories. But here we are from God's word. We're encountering Christ the King once more. Do we believe that he is who he says he is? Are we welcoming him into our lives as Savior and King? Are we turning from our sins and committing everything to him? There is salvation in Jesus, our Savior. But don't be fooled. If he is not king of your life, he's not your Savior. It is precisely his kingship and his divinity that demands a response from you. What will your response be to him today? Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.